Jill Lewis has always been fascinated by animals and nature and describes herself as a children's author, vet, wildlife enthusiast and treehouse dweller. After travelling the world as a vet, Jill returned to university to study writing for young people before publishing her first novel, Skyhawk, which was awarded the UKLA Children's Book of the Year in 2012. Her subsequent books have received many prestigious awards and nominations, and Jill's latest title is The Closest Thing to Flying, for which Just Imagine were proud to host the cover reveal early this year. Nikki Gamble recently met with Jill to talk about her work and latest world of animal rights, votes for women and riding bicycles. Jill, I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about this story. Yes, well, it's lovely to be here, so thank you, Nikki, for inviting me. The Closest Thing to Flying is a patchwork of lots of different areas of inspiration which all sort of came together. But I think the very first spark was after researching for my last book and it was all about, I found an article about the origins of the RSPB, the bird charity, and I discovered that there were these women founders back in 1890 these women got together because they wanted to stop the feather trade for fashion. They saw that birds were being plundered all around the world to supply feathers for hats and dresses, and they thought this was wrong. And I thought this would make a great story. I thought, this is this is fantastic. And for some reason, I expected these women, who had such a strong voice to protect the birds, I thought they'd be um, suffragists, you know, they'd be out there speaking up for the women... But then I discovered that actually one of the founders was actually anti-suffrage. <laughs> she didn't want women to have the vote. And that just sort of surprised me, really, and dismayed me as well. But she was such a product of her time that this was the way people thought that men had authority. Mm. And so I wanted a story to also be about birds, about conservation, about women and women's rights, but also to look at the other factor of how things change over time and in this case really looking at how things change from now to back looking just over 100 years ago. And it is startling that meeting where uh, your young heroine Hen uh, goes to meet with the Duchess of Portland, isn't it? That's right, yes. And realises that well, it's her first encounter with suffragists but of course the Duchess of Portland is not, uh, as you say, in favour of women's suffrage. So that strand of the story, it sounds as though it came first, and uh, the story actually starts with a different strand in the modern day. Perhaps tell us a little bit about that one too. It does indeed. I wanted to link the past and the present, and I was thinking, well, how can we do this? How could we link two girls, one from Victorian times and one from modern times. And because of the feather theme, um, I really thought, well, this has to come about through a hat, an antique hat. And significantly, there's a bird on the hat. And I wanted the hat to be very important in the Victorian girl's life, who's called Henrietta or Hen. But I also wanted something about the hat to be incredibly important in the modern-day girl's life. And the modern-day girl is a girl called Samira, and she's in Britain, but she um, is a refugee from Eritrea. And there's something about this bird that links her to having seen it in her past back in Eritrea. And so she desperately wants this hat. She doesn't know why, but she feels it's really important to part of her life. 
I mean, these two ca characters are uh, drawn together, although they're distant uh, in time, it feels as though they are very intimately connected. At one point you write about two bubbles touching but separate, which is such a delicate touch, isn't it, if you watch two bubbles and how they uh, come together. And the way that they make this connection is through Hen, Henrietta's diary, which Samira discovers in the hat box of the hat that she buys. Um, when did you decide that the narrative was going to be told in this diary format? I think it really, because I wanted it to be a connection between two girls, I didn't want it to be a complete sort of fantasy connection that we're actually going back in time, even though I did sort of play with that idea. So it really had to come through a diary being written um, from the past, but that could be written in such a way that it felt as if both girls were talking and thinking together. So it was quite difficult to do, but I tried to sort of make it a fresh voice from Henrietta in, in the Victorian times talking to Samira. And it's really because Henrietta... She doesn't want it to be a diary. She doesn't want it to be self-indulgent. She really wants somebody there, a friend she can talk to. So she always talks in the diaries, dear friend. Um, and that's how Samira in the modern day feels. She's got a friend who's listening to her. Um, and both both the girls are very... They have got similarities. Henrietta is brought up in Victorian times and feels very much cloistered by her very Victorian family um, who don't believe in women's rights, um, women's places in the house. And so she's feeling really quite oppressed. And also with Samira. Samira's come over from Eritrea with her mother and her mother can't speak English hardly at all and they're very controlled by a people trafficker, Rebel, who really controls their whole situation whether it's with money or meeting people he stops the mother going out to meet other people to to really control everything she does um, so they both have these very similar restrictions on their lives and they're both trying to sort of break out from that mm. I think um, Samira's story also came out of a personal experience didn't it Yes, well, I was very kindly invited by Sita Brahmachari and Jane Ray to see the work that they do at the Islington Centre for Refugees. Um, and one of the projects they were doing with refugees was to talk about the concept of home. And home to a lot of people is often refers back to often things which are very much in our nat the natural environment, so whether or not it's, for many people, it was a certain tree that they would sit under in the shade with friends and play games and um, be sociable. And many other times it, it was perhaps birds or animals or wildlife that would come into their backyards and gardens. And so with Samira, I really felt it was important that what she recognises is this bird on the hat that takes her back to a memory when she was just before that she left Eritrea to seeing a bird coming down to a puddle f drinking for water and it takes Samira back she's sitting she's sitting by the puddle this bird flies down and Samira's floating a paper boat across this wide puddle sea and it takes her back to a memory of a man's voice just talking gently to her and she's desperately trying to work out who this person is and why she's got this strong affection for this memory and that's part of the story and part of her trying to find out about her past. Mm. I think we won't say who that person is because <laughs> no. that would be giving 
too much of the story away. But I just want to stick with the birds for a moment and say there are some astonishing facts in there. And I could not believe those figures. I did. I, I read it three times to make sure that I had read correctly the number of birds that were being sold in a day just in London for decorative purposes. Are these facts that you researched? They are, and these are these histo- that was a particular historic plumage sale in the warehouses in central London, actually Cutler Street, where ships would come in and the feathers and bodies of birds would be taken to these warehouses and sold in these just vast quantities, vast amounts. Every week ships would come in and every day there'd be these auctions of birds and feathers. And they were having a dramatic, profound effect on bird populations across the world absolutely and it it took until 1921 with these founders of the rspb for it to be illegal to import feathers apart from ostrich feathers um into the uk um so extraordinary numbers why why do you think ostrich feathers were exempted because i think it was because they were farmed um and so what they weren't taken directly from the wild so those were allowed to come through so they weren't from wild um, ostriches and this is my this is my ignorance Um, I know obviously when a a whole bird appears on a hat that that means that the bird must have been killed uh, to create that decoration but you think of feathers being something that molts and would naturally molt but presumably in these kinds of quantities it's a case of killing the bird to create this. absolutely they were they were all sort of killed um, and plundered um, for their feathers and i think it's a great egret in america was almost extinct through the whole feather trade and again there was a movement in america um, women who had started that movement who were trying to stop the feather trade in america and luckily they've come back but i think when i was researching the book it really made me interested to think about our attitudes then and now and what has changed for the birds, because we know now we don't have birds collected for fashion anymore, but birds face so many more threats now with climate change, with loss of habitat and with persecution. And it really brought into sort of stark contrast some of the fates of different birds um, in this country. Um, When I look back at Skyhawk, which was about the osprey and how a hundred years ago there were hardly any ospreys in Britain because they'd been persecuted by the Victorians but now we've got we went from one breeding pair of ospreys in 1955 now we've got over 400 breeding pairs which through conservation efforts which is astonishing yet the golden eagle and the hen harrier are still persecuted to sort of near extinction or at least their their population, their recovery is very difficult because of continued persecution in this country. So we've still got long, many battles to fight. Mm. I mean, you write about animals in a broad sense, uh, but birds seem to be something that you come back to. Do birds hold a special place in your heart? Yes, I, they, I, I was noticing that recently, birds do come back. And I think one of the... Factors about birds, I think, which is really important, is that often birds are migratory, so they have to travel long distances between countries. Um, they often face many dangers. They might live safely in one country and then might travel to another one. One face many dangers on the way, but then face great persecution in another country. So I think they're very important in how 
humans across the world in different countries, we impose these borders on each other as humans, but birds don't have borders. It's about how to sort of protect and respect wildlife that, that does need this, the whole sort of globe to survive. Mm. It's fascinating. And I think um, also from a personal perspective, um, I think it's so easy for children to get up close to nature by observing birds if only you know it's not just about looking at the big cats on the television or the blue whale actually we can see so much of our natural world through the behavior of birds no matter where we live and I sometimes wonder whether we look enough I agree absolutely and it's astonishing when you do just take time just to sit and watch and whether you've put out some sort of bird feed on the feeder but they are they are extraordinary and their behaviours are wonderful to watch when you start to get to know some of these birds in your own backyard and, and in your own garden. Um, they're, they're wonderful, actually, yes. Let's come back to your book. I wonder if you could give us a reading. It would be lovely to hear what the book sounds like. Yes, well, I'd like to read from one of the passages from Henrietta's diary. I think to tell you a little bit about this section, I need to tell you about another character who's one of my favourites um, in the book and that is Henrietta's Aunt Kitty or Aunt Catherine. Um, now Aunt Kitty is Henrietta's father's youngest sister so um, although she's an aunt she's much nearer to Henrietta's age than Hen's father's age. She's only 19 and Kitty is this wild um, feisty girl who's at the very early stage of the movements wanting women to have women's votes um, she doesn't want to be married um, she doesn't want to be a trophy or somebody's possession she wants to live only for herself and there's a magical moment where Kitty, Aunt Kitty introduces Henrietta to the humble bicycle um, now the bicycle was a, a real revolutionary change for women at, at the turn of the century and just a bit earlier than that it allowed them to go where they wanted when they wanted and Henrietta and Kitty have just been delivering some leaflets for the newly formed Society of the Protection of Birds. They've just delivered the leaflets and they've ridden to the top of Primrose Hill where they're looking down on the whole of London spread out before them. And I shall read a little bit from that from Henrietta's diary. When we had completed our task, we pushed the bicycles to the top of Primrose Hill and looked down at London spread out before us. There's a fresh breeze that cooled our flushed cheeks. We're changing the world doing this, Hen, said Kitty. We're saving the birds. One day, people won't wear feathers for fashion and they won't even know it was the two of us who put the first letters through people's doors. But we will know, you and me. We will always know. You and me, I said, and I felt such a rush of affection for Kitty. Her free spirit can make anything seem possible. Kitty grinned widely and swung her leg over the bicycle. You and me forever! I turned my face up to the sun. Forever! I shouted. I'll race you, said Kitty. She set off and I followed close behind. The slope of the hill gave us such momentum to keep going that I could swear my wheels hardly touched the ground. I don't think I've ever felt my heart pounding as fast as it did on our descent. The grass was a blur beside me. It was a moment of utter fear and joy combined. I have never felt as alive as I did then. I was so taken by it that I did not care for what anyone thought of me. It was just Kitty and me in the bicycles and the wind rushing past. 
It was the closest thing to flying. Fantastic. And uh, if anybody picks up a copy of the book and looks at the book jacket, which is gorgeous, isn't it? It's lovely, yes. At the top of the page, you've got Samira on a bike. And on the other side, if you hold it upside down, there you've got a hen um, on the bike there. And, you know, cycling does bring with it this kind of exhilarating sense of freedom. Uh, Are you a cyclist yourself? Well, I I am. I I used to cycle all the time when I was younger. I used to cycle to school and I grew up in Bath, so it's the way to get around and see friends. And recently um, I've done a lot more cycling and especially when you've sort of been stuck inside the house all day, you just get out on the bike and just sort of feel the wind in your hair and um, go along the country lanes. It is, it's just, it, it is a sense of just freedom and having that headspace to think um, mm. I love it <laughs> mm. bikes become important in Samira's story too it's another way in which the two girls lives mirror each other why is it important to her well as we've seen the bikes are important in Henrietta's story but also in Samira's story because Samira's from Eritrea and in Eritrea the national sport is cycling everybody cycles um, and it was actually the Italians who brought over the bicycles to Eritrea back at that Victorian era and there is something about the bicycle that connects Samira to her own past and I won't explain too much about that because that'll give it <laughs> that'll give it away but it is it there's a sort of connection that runs deep there very deep between the two girls and there's something about the people who are teaching them to cycle too. We've mentioned Aunt Kitty, who, like you, I just adore that woman. She's the sort of woman that I would like to be. She's kind of fierce and fearless. <laughs> but Samira is also helped by uh, a family as well that give her a way out, if you like. Maybe we shouldn't say too much about that either um, at this point. Yes, it's, it's difficult without giving too much away and what I think I wanted to bring into the story is that in modern day time I think you know so much for women's rights has changed a lot for us in this country you know we can vote we can be pilots doctors um, and dare I say it prime ministers (laughs) Um, so a lot has changed but there's still a long way to go and there are a lot of women in this country whose lives are very much oppressed by the by the men in their lives and sometimes that's not easy to see on the outside with people um, and I wanted to bring that thread in and show how resilient some people are and also how actually sort of by understanding what other people are going through it's it's really important for all of us. It's amazing the way that everything just slotted together like the pieces of a jigsaw and they feel as though they are just meant to to be there together can I just go back to that quote about the bubbles touching but separate this kind of connection with the past and whether are there any people from history that you feel that like a bubble that you're sort of touching I think our past is so important and to look back at the past it's interesting you say that because the other day I was thinking about a great aunt of mine who I only really knew as a child and she sort of died when I was about eight but she had grown up um, the daughter of a farmer back in in Wales and sort of between the wars she was talking to farmers about asking them not to cut down hedgerows not to spray fields saying actually if we do this there won't be anything for the birds there won't be any 
there will be no birds singing in the springtime. And she was very much sort of shouted down just because she was a woman and she didn't know enough and all this sort of thing. And she was saying all the sorts of things that we are knowing to be true now, that pesticides are destroying our insect populations, which are affecting our bird populations and the hedgerows. We're mowing them down so there's no nesting space or food for birds in winter. Um, And I think it's important to look back on history and sort of look at the people who are saying things. And and at this point now, I think, well, what are people saying that's really important that we're not listening to because we don't want to listen to? What are the really important factors today? Just one final point, really, that I I think it's um, when Kitty and Hen have that first meeting with the PSB people and one of them says to to Hen intelligence isn't measured by your education but by your curiosity with the world tell us a little bit more about your feelings about that oh yes well that's from a meeting with um, Aunt Kitty has a friend who's a doctor friend and she is talking about men and how she says that sometimes the most educated men she's met are the dullest of them all, and how your intelligence isn't measured by your education, about the curiosity about the world. And this is something that I feel very strongly about, um, especially with the way children are taught in schools, with the curriculum that's so narrow, um, and they're just being tested to jump through hoops. And it takes away... A child's curiosity. You see children going through primary school with these fantastic, curious minds, and then suddenly they're just put into the sausage machine where they have to think a certain way, have to answer questions a certain way. You're not allowed to dare to be different and give a different opinion because you'll be marked down. You have to know how to answer a question. And it's terribly dull, and I think it's forcing many children to become less curious. And that's the most magical thing, really, about the world, to maintain this curiosity about everything and not to be stifled with the way you think and how you approach something. And I think it has to be said that, as I'm sure you'd agree from your experiences in visiting schools, that most teachers know that and want to foster that. Um, And it's, you know, sometimes they feel that their wings are clipped too. Absolutely. You see so many teachers which are so disillusioned because they know how they want to teach the the pupils under their care. They know they know how it would benefit them, but they have all these targets that are set. They have to write, keep writing assessments, and it's so it's stifling teachers um, and it's stifling pupils. So the system really has to have this complete um, overhaul. I think um, not to make education this race to jump through a certain hoop when you're 16 or 18 or otherwise you know you sort of put off education you, you, they say you won't get a job nothing will happen for you it's it's it is it's about it's really a sort of a, a journey to find out who you are what you're interested in and where your strengths lie and to take you further on your life journey rather than being stifled yeah sometimes we, we miss the big picture in looking at the small things what is it all about really what's it for yes and I meet so many people who are doing one sort of job that they've gone through a different a very tortuous route but of doing something they absolutely love and that's what I tried to tell you and you know, really follow what you love and um, what you're really enthused by um, and don't be put off whether or not you're told you're good at it or it's not going to 
create a job at the end of it it's actually following those things that you're absolutely passionate about because you'll put all your energy into that so to bring us back to books then because this is one way in which we can foster curiosity and imagination when you step inside the pages of a book that's exactly what you are doing what have we got to look forward to from you next well that's always very difficult to say because there are a few things that are just sort of in the development side so I always feel it slightly jinxes it but I do have another book coming out I do have one which I'm very excited about coming out in July which is called Eagle Warrior it is a bird (laughs) back to birds (laughs) and again this is on this theme of persecution of golden eagles in Britain in Scotland and greatly inspired by some of the work the conservationists are doing to try to increase their numbers but sadly the recovery is being limited due to the grouse shooting industry so this is um, a book for Barrington Stoke. Oh fantastic they're not they're not great breeders are they golden eagles? Well they are they are they would love to breed but they just keep getting shot poisoned and trapped (laughs) so they could breed very well but they 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 just they're Populations have been limited in this country um, due to persecution. And there was a big survey done um, recently by the um, Scottish National Heritage, um, which showed they satellite tracked eagles and it showed that they've got this high disappearance rate over grouse moors. So it's again another really important book for me because when we talk about animals being sort of poached or killed, we often think about elephants and rhinos in other countries, which is very important. But we still must look at what's happening in this country and try to do better all round. Well, Jill, thank you so much for talking to us today. You've given me some fascinating insights into the writing uh, of this book. Um, We look forward to Eagle Warrior too.